come back to Matthew 26, and I've entitled this message, The Betrayal of Jesus, Playing Right into God's Hands. As human beings, we often revel in stories, whether in written form, movies, or real life, in which the bad guy overplays his hand and then gets tricked by the good guy and kind of plays right into the good guy's hand. To see the villain overstepping his bounds and overplaying his hand and then ultimately coming to be destroyed is really enjoyable and satisfying to watch. We like to see justice done in that way for the, the person who's done wrong to get what's coming to them. In Matthew 26, we see just such an event. Judas, the religious leaders, they are actually playing right into God's hands even though they're seeking to betray Jesus, to arrest him falsely, to take him at night. All that they do is unjust, is wrong morally, and yet it plays right into God's eternal plan, and they're doing it without even knowing it. The passage before us begins by showing how Judas's act of betrayal specifically is right according to God's plan and working according to what he has ordained from eternity. Look at verses 47 to 50. <clears throat> verses 47 to 50 of Matthew 26. While he was still speaking, so this is connecting it to what just came before. He was just speaking to Peter, James, and John, some of the other disciples as well, and saying, arise, my time to be betrayed is at hand. And as he's still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrives, leading a group of soldiers with a large crowd of armed, uh, armed with swords and clubs, and they were sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. Judas had told them, the one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And Jesus replied, friend, do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. The religious leaders in Jerusalem, even though they were separate from the Romans, they had a contingent of soldiers that the Romans allowed them as a temple guard. And here the religious leaders have sent that temple guard with Judas at its head to arrest Jesus. And they wanted there to be no issues here. It's dark, it's at night. Judas knows what Jesus looks like. He's very familiar with him. But many of the guards won't be. And so it's important for Judas to have some sort of signal to the rest so that he can pick out which one is Jesus among all the disciples, give this sign of the kiss, usually on the cheek in that culture, as many cultures still have today, a sign of familiarity and friendship that Judas is going to twist into a sign of betrayal, so that the Roman soldiers that are accompanying him can say, okay, that's the one. Let's grab him. That We don't want to have any issues here. We don't want to have any chance of grabbing the wrong person. And so Judas, the informer, John writes to us in the Gospel of John, chapter 18, he tells us that Judas knew the place where Jesus and the disciples were. Why? Well, because Jesus would often go there with his disciples. This was not a new place. They would often go here for quiet solitude, apparently for prayer, as Jesus has just spent a great deal of time in prayer. And Judas uses this sign, once again, of friendship, in order to betray Jesus. But notice how he he talks to Jesus. He says, Teacher, rabbi, this is the second time that he's called Jesus rabbi or teacher. And this is 
different than what the rest of the disciples keep referring to Jesus as, which is Lord or Master. Because, of course, for Judas, Jesus is not his Lord or Master. Even the title of Rabbi or Teacher is really a lie. It's a deception. Judas doesn't actually think Jesus is his teacher or rabbi. How do we know that? Well, notice what Judas does here. Judas is the first person to speak. Now, in that society, if you had uh, someone who was the leader of a group of disciples, a teacher, a rabbi, if you met that individual in the marketplace out, out in public, it was customary, it was required by the rules of etiquette at that time, that you allow the teacher, the rabbi, to address you first if he so chose. So he would acknowledge your presence and, and say something to you and kind of welcome you into a conversation. But what does Judas do? He walks straight up to Jesus and he starts talking. This is a break of etiquette and it's actually a, a calculated insult. Judas is publicly snubbing Jesus here by the way in which he's doing this. He has no real respect or appreciation for Jesus and who he is. He certainly doesn't respect him as a typical disciple is re required to respect and honor their teacher or their rabbi. He is deluded in this situation that he is in control of the situation. He thinks he's in control because he has the, the, the whole group of soldiers behind him. He thinks he's in control because he's going to confront Jesus and speak to him and break etiquette and break protocol. He thinks he's in control because he is about to turn Jesus over with a mark of betrayal, the kiss. But notice how Jesus responds to him in verse 50. <clears throat> what does Jesus say? Friend, do what you came for. Jesus calls him friend. You see, for more than three years now, Jesus has treated Judas as a friend, knowing all along that Judas would betray him. But that hasn't kept Jesus from treating Judas with the same kindness, the same consideration as everyone else. He's helped Judas. He's taught Judas. He's even allowed Judas to accompany the others and go out and teach in his name. He has truly shown himself to be a friend of Judas, but of course Judas is not showing himself to be a true friend or a disciple of Jesus. But you might remember what Jesus has taught elsewhere. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who despitefully use you, he's told his followers. And here's Jesus, not just telling us things to do, but he exemplifies all that he teaches. Here, he shows love to, in earthly terms, his greatest enemy the one betraying him. But Judas, without knowing it, is actually playing right into God's hands. But then we're going to see an act of defense by Peter, one of the disciples, trying to defend Jesus with a sword. But Peter's action is actually against the plan of God. And so Jesus stops it. Look at verses 51 to 54. With that, one of Jesus' companions, and by the way, in John chapter 18, verse 10, we're, we're told that the companion in question is Peter himself, even though Matthew doesn't say his name. One of the companions, Peter, reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Some have suggested that Peter was really bad with the sword here, because it, it would take a lot of talent to try to just cut off an ear. Likely he's trying to go for the guy's head, and he kind of misses it. 
and likely the individual may have been wearing a helmet as well, so it may have glanced off. Either way, Peter is not a swordsman. He's a fisherman. He's just doing the best he can, and he wants to protect or defend Jesus. But Jesus says, put your sword back in its place. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think that I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus knew that at any moment he could call forth an angelic host of warriors that no human force could overcome. By the way, in the, in the Roman world, at any given time, they would only have 25, up to 25 legions of Roman soldiers on standby in the whole Roman Empire. 12 legions of the angels would be equivalent to half of the entire Roman army. 12 legions of angels could have easily overtaken Jerusalem in a couple hours and all of the land of Israel within a couple days. Jesus says, I, I have a full army at my disposal. I could call on even more if I needed to. The issue is not military might. The issue is doing God's will, God's way. And that's what Jesus is going to follow. And Peter is not working in line with that. He's working against it. <clears throat> and Jesus tells us why, verse 54. How then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? It might be helpful to take one quick step back and talk about defense of the innocent in general in the Bible. The Bible actually has much to tell us about how important it is in a society for individuals, both law enforcement, but just the common citizen, to defend others, to defend the innocent, to stand up for justice. That's good and appropriate. Defending others, even with the use of violence, is good and appropriate at certain times. But this is not one of those times, Jesus says. The problem is what? That the scriptures must be fulfilled. And if you look at Psalm 22 or 69, or you look at Isaiah 52 and 53, or we look just a few verses prior to this, and we remember that Jesus had just quoted from Zechariah 13:7, the shepherd will be struck and the sheep of the flock will be scattered meaning the disciples. All of these passages, these prophecies, these promises must be fulfilled. And if there were to be an armed insurrection at this point by Jesus' followers, it would actually work against the plan of God. And so once again, we see Peter with a great deal of enthusiasm, as Peter often has, but once again, his enthusiasm, his determination to do things according to his understanding and his willpower and his physical strength, is getting in the way of God, not helping to produce the fruit of God. Even the desire to protect Jesus, who is innocent, must not be given into in this instance because it's not the will of the Father. And it's vital that Jesus, the innocent party, who's called the Lamb of God, must be slain in order to take away the sin of the world. Peter's actions were against the will of God and ultimately harmful to what Jesus was trying to accomplish. And this reminds us of something. Christianity is not to be defended or pushed forward by use of the sword or violence. Many other religions may at times push themselves forward by use of violence and the sword. Many have throughout human history. Many still do to this day. But that's never been the way of Christ. That's never been the way that Christ taught us to act. One of the uh, common objections in Christian history to Christianity <clears throat> is something like the violence of the Crusades in that time period in history. 
And so the, the objection will go something like this. Well, Jesus told his followers to be people of peace, to not respond in violence, and yet during the Crusades, many people claiming to be Christians killed Jews and Muslims and even other Christians and did some horrible things for several hundred years in a wrong-headed attempt to take back the Holy Land for God. But it's not actually much of an objection if we think about it from a biblical lens in this sense. Why would we ever think that the Crusaders were Christian? Nothing they did was Christian. None of their actions were in line with what Jesus taught his disciples. He explicitly says, my kingdom does not come about in the normal way that human kingdoms come about. You shall not resort to violence to push forward my name and my kingdom purposes. My kingdom is going to go forward not with a sword, but with me, the Savior, dying on a cross unjustly. You see, so oftentimes in, in church history, we have these examples, and they're tragic, of individuals who call themselves Christians but are acting in ways that have nothing to do with Christianity. And we can always take it to the bank or take it as a, a truism that if as a Christian or someone claiming to be a Christian, you are acting in a violent way in order to push forward the cause of Christianity, then you're not following Christ in that moment. That's very clear. The kingdom Jesus has come to set up and the gospel that he came to proclaim is not to be pushed forward by human might or military power. Instead, what should Peter have been doing? His hands at that moment are clasped around a sword. But what did Jesus just tell him and the other disciples to be doing a few moments before this? Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Peter's hands should have been clasped in prayer at that moment. But instead, what had he done? What had the other disciples done? They had fallen asleep on the job. Instead of pushing forward God's kingdom purposes with the methods that God had given, which are prayer and reliance on God and following his will, even when it seems counterintuitive, instead of doing that, Peter wants to push it forward with human might and human willpower. And this is a cautionary tale for us as well. Because oftentimes we want to do the same. Even after we become a Christian, we want to push forward in our Christian life and our own ability, our own power, according to our own wisdom. And God says, no, that's not how his kingdom moves forward. That's not how his gospel goes forth. That's not how our growth in Christ happens. Rather, we must rely on him and his way of doing things. Jesus also gives us a wonderful example here. You remember at Jesus' birth, Jesus birth what was he called? He had several titles or names. <clears throat> One of them, coming from Isaiah and elsewhere, is that he was going to be the Prince of Peace. And what he was about to do by going to the cross was to make peace between sinful humanity and a holy and just God. Jesus, in this instance, is trusting in the will of the Father, and he knows God's plan. The Father's plan includes suffering. And he's willing to endure it. And later on in the New Testament, we're actually told to do the same if we're a Christian. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, we're told, endure suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you and I were serving as military combatants in a war, we're, in, we're at the front lines, we're in the trenches, we would not expect that the food and our clothing, and the shelter, whatever shelter we had, 
or our beds would be exactly like we had back at home with the comforts of home. And we would think it rather odd if all the soldiers were complaining, oh, I don't have my nice silk sheets. I have to sleep on the floor. What's going on? This is so unfair. Well, we're in a war. You have to go through certain privations when you are fighting in a war. We understand that. And wh but what we often fail to understand as Christians is what Jesus shows us here, what 2 Timothy 2 tells us, is that we as Christians are constantly in a war. But it's not the physical war that we're familiar with in this world. It's a spiritual battle. We're told explicitly in the New Testament, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, the normal physical warfare that, under, that uh, happens in our world. Rather, we undergo a spiritual battle. We are fighting spiritual forces. But as in any war, spiritual or physical, we have to endure hardship, endure persecution, endure situations that are not ideal. But that's exactly what Jesus did. And he gives us the example and shows us the way. Kingdom battles must be fought by God's followers with kingdom means, which means by God's spirit according to the Father's will. And that's what Jesus does here. Jesus is about to say, my kingdom does not originate from this world. He's going to say it in just a few verses. That should tell us something. The kingdom Jesus came to bring is not going to arise from this world like other kingdoms have. And it's not going to have the characteristics that other human kingdoms have. It's not going to be pushed forward by violence. Rather, his kingdom, yes, it has a physical element. The New Testament tells us about that. But it begins by a spiritual reality. And it is pushed forward by spiritual forces. Well, now we see, thirdly, an act of cowardice by the religious leaders specifically that is also according to the plan of God. Verses 55 to 57. At that time, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Interesting, isn't it? Jesus had just given that prophecy, Zechariah 13, 7. The shepherd is going to be struck. The sheep are going to scatter, meaning the disciples. And just a few moments later, the disciples who had at the time said, oh no, we're never going to leave you. We're going to stick by you through thick and thin. Where are they? They've run away. That, that prophecy has already been fulfilled. But here we see an act of cowardice because there is no legitimate reason to arrest Jesus. He has broken no law, Roman or Jewish. The religious leaders could never actually accuse him of anything and make it stick because they knew he had not broken any law. So what do they do? They don't arrest him in daylight with other people around because they're ultimately cowards. They care more about the opinions of others and they don't want other individuals getting upset, those who might be Jesus' followers, and so they arrest him at night against all law, subverting all justice and going directly against God's word, which the religious leaders, of course, were supposed to follow and teach. All these actions, though, they happen in a way, or they happen in this way, I should say, because the scriptures have to be fulfilled, Jesus says. The scriptures have to be and will be fulfilled precisely in the way that God had said them. The religious leaders think they're in control. But who's actually in control? God. And they're playing right into his hands. 
So we see here an act of betrayal, an act of defense, and an act of cowardice. The betrayal and the cowardice were directly fulfilling scriptures. And Peter, with his act of defense, well-intentioned but naive and wrong, he was instructed not to act in that way. Why? For the exact same reason, so that the scriptures could be fulfilled. That's the guiding force here. God's word can, must, and always will be fulfilled, just the way it says. And this allows us to then draw four, or pardon me, three conclusions. First of all, it gives us a better understanding of God's ultimate will and how it's on full display, even in the death of Christ. Jesus is determined to do the Father's will, the Father's way. We've seen that time and time again. And the religious leaders, the guards, and Judas are all playing right into his hands. And as they do so, what do they show about themselves? They show they're not actually interested in God's will. Talk about an irony. The religious leaders of God's chosen people, Israel, don't actually have any interest in following God's will. They don't know God. They don't have any desire to follow his ways. Peter, too, even though he's a disciple of Jesus and he has much more understanding than many of the religious leaders even, Peter and the rest of the disciples, they're actually not on the same page as Jesus, their master. But we're reminded that all enemies of God, all those who reject Jesus and refuse to bow to him alone, will ultimately play right into his hands. God wins. He always wins. He always will win. In even the greatest plots and schemes that come against him will ultimately fail. And not only fail in the sense that they don't come to fruition, but they actually serve to push forward the work of God. Even his followers, like Peter, can often act in ways that are completely out of step with the Father's will. But a true disciple of Jesus must learn to do what God commands and do it the way he commands us to do it. God's will must be the thing with which we align our lives. And even after we become a Christian, we can't push forward in our Christian life according to our own wisdom, our own power, our own ability, our own strength, our own understanding. Rather, we must submit all of that to the will of God the Father, to the truth of his word. So it gives us a, a better understanding of God's will on ultimate display. But secondly, it reminds us that not all is as it seems. We can't think about what God does and what the scriptures say and what Jesus accomplished here. We can't think of it in normal human frameworks. Not all is as it seems on the surface. Even in his arrest, Jesus is king. He reprimands the disciples. He reproves the guards. He lets them take him, but he reproves the guards who have come to falsely arrest him. He even commands Judas, go ahead with your actions. He's the one in charge. From first to last, Jesus is the king. You remember at other times when they had come to harm him or arrest him, he would often say something like, my hour has not yet come, the time has not yet arrived. Even at one juncture when some came to kill him, he got out of it some supernatural way. Why? Because he's actually in charge. He knows the hour of his death is approaching. He knows now is the time. And so he will allow them to do even the despicable actions that they are trying to do because he's ultimately in charge. From the moment he was conceived until the moment of his death on the cross, 
Jesus was in charge. Not all is as it seems. The religious leaders, the Romans, Judas, even the disciples, think they are controlling various situations. But they're all wrong. The triune God and his plan is being worked out despite the best efforts of mankind to thwart his plan. Mortal men can never undo the work of God. We can never mess up the plan of God. God doesn't need a secondary plan. He doesn't need a plan B. He doesn't need an alternate option in case something doesn't go the way he desired. All that God desires, all that he plans, all that he wills, and all that he states in scripture will come about precisely as he said, and no amount of human conniving against his ways will ever undo that. The same is still the case today. And thirdly, there's a divine necessity for the scriptures to be fulfilled. We see over and over again Jesus saying, this has to happen this way because the scriptures say this. There is a divine necessity. And in theological terms, the, the concept of divine necessity is more than just what we think of in human, a human framework as this is necessary. We say things like, okay, it's necessary for me to go get the oil changed in my car, etc. These are things that do need to happen, yes. But a divine necessity is something that God has ordained and stated. It flows from his character and his design and his decrees, and it cannot be thwarted no matter what. Nothing can stand in its way. It is a divine necessity that scripture be fulfilled, and it always will be. Now, for those who are Christians, this offers great hope. Hope for this present moment and hope for the future because every single prediction, every single prophecy, every single promise that God made in the Old Testament and the New that had a particular time stamp on it, for instance, the prophecies of Christ's coming, his birth and his death, all of those have been fulfilled exactly as he stated. And all those who have not yet been fulfilled that are still for a future date that means all of those will be fulfilled exactly as he stated as well. So we can trust based on what he has already accomplished and how we have already seen that not a single letter or a single word or a single statement in all the scriptures has ever been shown to be flawed. We can then take great hope for everything that has not yet happened, that it will happen just as he said. We can have great confidence because the scriptures, as Jesus said, cannot be broken. They cannot fall short of their intended target in any way, shape, or form. Even the worst attacks of ungodly humanity ultimately play right into God's hands. The worst enemy of God, with their worst schemes and plans, ultimately only serve to push forward God and his plans. Isn't that wonderful? You know, if you're a Christian, that, that's amazing. Because that means nothing that happens... No weapon formed against God and his people will ever stand. We, we cannot be destroyed. God's plan and his kingdom cannot be thwarted. Everything will happen just as he said. And this is why we as Christians can have great hope and confidence and why also we need to know what the scriptures say so that we can stand firmly rooted in the scriptures saying God has promised this. I'm going to hold on to that because I know his promises cannot fail. Let us end with this question. There's a question that's become quite common today. You've probably heard it over and over again. Are you on the right side of history? 
Are we as a society on the right side of history? Every time there's a new question in the public arena, political spectrum, some sort of moral issue that politicians want to bicker back and forth about, this question comes up in the media and elsewhere. Are, are we on the right side of history? There are many problems with that question. We don't want to spend the time to go into those, but one problem is that it's completely subjective. Let's apply that question to this situation from Matthew 26 and see if it stands up. If you would have asked the religious leaders, are you on the right side of history with what you're doing with Jesus? They would have said, yes, absolutely, because he's a troublemaker and we don't want the Romans coming down hard on us, so this is exactly on the right side of history. If you would have asked the Roman guards, are you on the right side of history? Of course, we're in the greatest empire that has ever been built, and we're just following orders. Judas, are you on the right side of history? Yes, absolutely. Peter, you swinging your sword around, stop for a moment. Are you on the right side of history? Yes, absolutely, I'm defending Jesus. See, the problem is it's completely subjective. It's based on your understanding of the situation, which is very limited. A far better question is this, a far more biblical question, which makes it a far better question, is this. Will you be found on the right side of God at the end of human history? What did Jesus just say in Matthew 24 and 25? He said, there is a judgment day coming. All humanity will stand before me. And there will be those that Jesus acknowledges, I know them, they are one of mine, and they will go to the right hand into God's presence forever. But there are others whom God does not know who have rejected him who will go to his left hand into eternal punishment, he says. Far more important question, far less subjective, because it's based on the objective truth of scripture, is will you be found on the right side of God at the end of human history? The Romans, the Roman soldiers, the religious leaders, Judas, and even Peter and the disciples were all on the wrong side of God in this scenario. Thankfully, Peter and the disciples later on came back and realized their error, and they repented and were restored. But my friend, what about you? Where are you at before God today? If you were, if you were to have to stand before him, if judgment day were right now, would you be found on the right side of God? Would you be accepted by him? Would he claim to know you? If not, you can come to know him today. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that in your wisdom and your almighty power, no human actions or attempts or schemes can ultimately thwart your divine plans and decrees. Thank you that even in the worst crime in human history, the betrayal and death of Jesus, you were actually working out your plan the whole time for our good and your glory to redeem people from every nation, tribe, and tongue to make a people for your name, to show forth your grace and your love, your forgiveness and your restoration, to make us what you always intended us to be when you created us as human beings in your image. Thank you that we can trust your word, that it will always be found truthful, that your promises will always be fulfilled. I ask that you would help us to be found 
on the right side of you at the end of the age when you come to judge the living and the dead. If there are any here joining with us online or in person to whom you would not say on judgment day that you know them, I pray that they would come to know you today, that they would repent of their sins and turn to you. And I also ask, Lord, for those who have truly become Christians, are followers of yours, and have been forgiven by your death on the cross, that you may remind us today not to push forward in our Christian life according to our own estimation of our strength, according to our own understanding, but that we would submit our ways to you as Christ did, to follow the will of the Father by the power of your Spirit. And in, in and through that means, to see your kingdom work and your gospel be advanced in our society, in our families, in our friend groups, and wherever you take us. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.